Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Vincent Fritchie. 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 Yes. Vincent Fritchie. Uh, Vincent Wine Company. Uh, it's December 18th, 2019. We're at the Nicholson Library on Linfield's campus. Thank you so much, Vincent, for oh, joining yeah. us today. Nice to be here. Uh, we'll start you with the most important question, which is why wine? Why wine? It's a huge question for me. It's just uh, it's a, a, a thing that brings together, obviously, a beverage and, and a pleasurable, be- pleasurable beverage but farming, uh, science, uh, sort of magic or luck, um, patience. Uh, there is just so much that comes together and I really came into wine as a young adult. Um, I had several epiphanies through my life of just wine. Obviously people always you know, would talk about it or you know, you'd see in a movie you know, somebody had some fancy old wine. <laughs> it seemed like something revered. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time visiting a winery, just being tagged along, tagging along as a kid and mm-hmm. smelling the, the cellar, the barrel cellar, and certain things that kind of uh, become indelible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I studied abroad in college and certainly had some exposure to wine there in Europe. Uh, and when I came back to the States and I was of legal age, not only could I buy something, but I found their books and even magazines and just you know, newspaper columns back then, this being almost 30 years ago. Um, and I found I really wanted to seek out anything about wine, any information about where it's grown, how it's made, obviously how it's enjoyed, how it can age, how it may not age, and for various reasons, various styles of wine, methods of production, mm-hmm. et cetera. I just, I found it fascinating. Mm-hmm. I love reading about it. Um, I, I actually, when I think about it, I, I had more, um, I had more time than money, <laughs> so I had time to read. I would look for opportunities to taste, but it, it's not like I had so much money and I, I could just go out and buy all <laughs> kinds of great wines and just try them, you know. So, so in that way, the almost the difficulty of gaining experience became part of the pursuit, uh, the interest throughout my twenties of kind of. You know, reading about wine, thinking about wine, uh, meeting other people, and that led to the wine uh, internet, such as it was in the '90s, um, and discussion groups, bulletin board things, forums, like that, uh, that really allowed me to connect outside of my local area. I was in San Francisco at the time. It allowed me to connect with wine lovers around the world, as long as they could communicate in English, and and I found people who had were wealthy and had big sellers to young 20-somethings like me who didn't have much of anything but an interest. And, and kind of everyone in between, from mm-hmm. wine lovers to industry people, makers, sellers, distributors, you name it. But all the people who had a wine geek passion who would come together and discuss it. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody was coming to town, oh, we should all get together, the locals, and, and have a dinner or something. And, and I just found I, it was kind of ways to connect and learn more. And I just sort of... Uh, fell into it, or I kept falling, if you will. I kept finding there was more to learn, more to enjoy or discover, and certainly great wines to taste. And I would taste wines that just moved me and mm-hmm. made me really think. Mm-hmm. Be it a inexpensive Provencal rosé to to one time I got lucky to go to a really fancy Burgundy tasting, a trade tasting 
when I wasn't in the trade, but somebody from the trade's like, oh, come with me, you know. <laughs> and, and it was great, and it was revelatory, and it was sort of like, it wasn't wasted on me, I'll tell you that. Um, and so I just kind of, yeah, had an interest and just kind of kept going. It's hard, to, uh, it's hard to actually pinpoint any single moment, certainly. Mm -hmm. And it certainly wasn't a, uh, it's something that seems so deep that, yeah, it's not like, oh yeah, I just kind of grew out of that, I'm not interested, you know. It's been a passion unlike any other, you know, outside of love. So how does the passion and interest turn into actually doing it? What, did, what point did you actually get into the industry? Yeah, that's an interesting one for me because I'm not a, and I, I don't know, some people may be like this. You play guitar and the, I gotta build guitars and build one because <laughs> none are right for me, so I have to build one just for me. And or bicycles or, you know, I grew up surfing, but I never made surfboards, never made bicycles, never made guitars, never made these things. Mm -hmm. I might, you know, be interested in something, but it wasn't that I had to do it. And with wine, it was very much like, oh, you know, being interested in it was a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, I could never do it. You know, it takes magic. <laughs> it would take land. It would take being a farmer. It would take uh, I, any number of things I either didn't have or had no hope of having. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like being, oh, well, if you're ten feet tall, you could do it. Like, well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> so it was, it was interesting that my interest in wine was born in, uh, I was born or came into it, never dreaming I would ever make it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was really the wine internet. Um, you know, the story for me is, you know, it's over twenty years old now, where I met via the wine internet. Um, makers in, in, in California where I was living, again, in the San Francisco area. Um, but I also was influenced. I was working for a, an importer at a retailer, retail shop in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. and they were, they got us all together, and their whole thing was kind of like a record label. We're going to break a new band, break a new producer, you know, bring them to America. Nobody's heard of them. And they mentioned the guy, and I won't mention his name, but he's become well-known. And I was like, oh, so-and-so, Fred, you know, I know that guy. He participates in this discussion group. Mm -hmm. He was like an ex-nuclear physicist who makes wine and does so very well and very notably, and, but also spoke, you know, had good command of, of, uh, of English and was a wine geek and would communicate. And they're like, essentially, I could see in their eyes, like, how... I, you know, wait, you know it? Like, <laughs> we're the ones who introduced you to him. You can't know this. It was a destabilizing moment, I'll just say that, where the idea of this model of we are going to expose the world to somebody. And somebody was online and a totally approachable and interesting person and, you know, wouldn't necessarily suffer fools. But if you are interested, you know, you could, you could communicate and, and ask questions or whatever and give answers, because they might have questions too. <laughs> and so I just kind of found uh, the internet allowing people of a common interest, no matter what you did, in your normal position. If you walked in a room, you could kind of tell the person who was well off, or the older <laughs> person, or whatever. Here we were just all people, <laughs> and you could kind of sit together without it being cliquish. And, and it turns out, did you realize that person's the national distributor of so-and-so? Like, I had no idea. We were just talking about our mutual love of Zinfandel or something. And, and uh, the point of this all is that I was blessed with the invitation to come help with Harvest. And I'd like to tell the story that uh, I, was, I, was, I was like, oh my god, I've won the lottery, you know? <laughs> Who knew I could come help? And I've learned that like, we'll take anybody with a pulse, right? <laughs> you want to come help sort food? By all means. You want to clean? Come on down. But, I, and I, I do half kid, we really will take anyone, but uh, practically. But 
but here I was being invited to come help. And I did, and I found I liked it. Mm -hmm. And so much to my surprise, I became interested in the making of something I was, I was passionate about, not just the doing of it, the, 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 uh, you know, the building of it, rather mm -hmm. than just the use of it. And mm -hmm. so it was quite surprising to me. And bottom line, communication on the internet with strangers. <laughs> Amazing. This is the pre-social media world, but it's how people did it. And even then it seemed, it felt evolved and people would talk about the 80s where you had very just simple, rudimentary bulletin board listserv mm -hmm. type things. Mm -hmm. uh, this was actually fairly <laughs> robust compared to that, but still you look back and think, did we have the internet then 20 years ago? I guess we did. <laughs> yeah, I did email. Okay. Um, things have changed. Sure, sure. Yeah, so. Tell me about the first time working in Harvest. What, what about it appealed to you? Why did, why did you like it? You know, it was, um, it was so tangible and it was so, uh, it was so real. I mean, I'd read books about people making wine in Sonoma County or things that had involved, you know, mm -hmm. you know, touched on that or whatever. And here I was helping a, one person in particular who made wine in another couple's facility with a few other people who rented space and so None of them owned the facility. One rented it, the other sort of rented space from them. The licensing was all you mm -hmm. know, above board, but it was its own particular structure that I've seen replicated many times and have done myself, but I had no idea you could do that. I thought you had to own a building on a hilltop, and here they were in a, you know, an industrial part of town in, 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 in you know, suburban Santa Rosa and, and making wine. Um, and so the, 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 it was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't really realize you could do this. And they're like, oh yeah, let's go out to this vineyard that I work with. I'm like, oh, I've heard of this vineyard. I, I thought so-and-so owned it. I, you know, Deloche Winery makes wine from that vineyard. They're like, oh no, I mean, a few producers do. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we have this acre over here by the road. And I was like, what? Like, oh, I didn't really, yeah. Oh, and, uh, you know, it dawned on me, I'd seen makers of Pinot Noir, I had Hirsch Vineyard this and Hirsch Vineyard that. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of put it all together that, oh, you could have a piece of a vineyard and you didn't even own it, but you would work with it and the grower, you're really tight with them. It's like, oh yeah, let's go see, you know, Fred, the grower, whoever. And we stop by and check the vines, go talk to the grower. They're talking about, you know, the harvest is coming up. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it just hit me like, oh, I'd read about these things. It's just one of these obvious things that strikes you, and all of a sudden, this is it. These are people doing it day to day. And they also didn't look like me, literally, but they felt like me. They didn't have a lot of money, they had a lot of passion, they had a lot of knowledge, and were willing to work hard. But they didn't, it seemed very, not approachable, yeah, very reasonable, very, fairly approachable. Um, like, God, that's something you could do, and without it just being a, hey, me too, I'm just gonna jump in and do this. Um, I remember thinking to myself, yeah, I really built this up to be like something that would be, yeah, exactly, it'd be a chateau in Bordeaux and blah, 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 from, from lineage and, and, and really that's one, not obviously the American way, and two, it's actually even in the old world, very common for people mm -hmm. to, even by their standards, work untraditionally or un, seemingly untraditionally on estate kind of focus where you rent vines or otherwise uh, have arrangements mm -hmm. to get very good particular fruit to, with which to make your wines. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's essentially how I do this here, so. Um, yeah, and so I just, I found I really, it connected my passion of wine with the making of it. We talked about it a lot while we were doing any of the work. 
the work seemed varied from vineyard, even if you don't do your own farming, you might do some green harvesting or other shoot positioning or other things and kind of tend your area, like sort of taking car care of your rental house or something in the yard, like you may not rebuild it, you know, but you might tend it and that's uh, probably a bad example. But the point <laughs> being, here are people who didn't own something really and, and kind of had the farming done for them were still very involved and, mm -hmm. and, and I just thought I oh, would do that and then we're going to go buy the winery and top some barrels and clean some fermenters and get ready for the, again, the coming harvest and I just thought, ah, oh, mix the stuff. I don't really like going to one place every day, all day. I, I, I mean, people would say who does, but I think some people really do. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly worked jobs that have been like that, but it just on so many levels, it appealed to me, this work and this, this, uh, this kind of culture. Um, and, 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 it, and it was something that I just kind of filed away. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, this being literally 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I had decided to move to Oregon. Uh, I, in part, for wine, but it was hard to imagine. But at that point, I was like, I think I want to make wine, and I think I want to make it in Oregon. But I didn't, you know, we didn't move north with, with, with that declaration. Our move north was to, to be here, not to go somewhere and get a job, or get a job, go somewhere in a few years, mm -hmm. move somewhere else, mm -hmm. and then, what are you doing? And, and we just really wanted to get away from the Bay Area. It was just so already high stress and high money and just sort of crazy. And, and we both loved Oregon and had spent uh, a bit of time here and thought, you know, this is where we actually want to be and raise a family. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, we'll see about that wine thing. Um, and so the next year we moved north, and in many ways I thought, uh, in the year 2000, I thought, God, did I just have a break in wine? Did I meet some people who, um, you know, without riding anyone's coattails, but legitimately, like, I could have gone back for harvest the next year or otherwise just kind of kept helping or otherwise mm -hmm. uh, apprenticing is really the right word. And was I, that seemed very un unexpected, seemingly rare, well, maybe not as rare as I thought, but still something that, gosh, you know, am I gonna just walk away from that? But really life was bigger than that one thing at the moment. I already had a daughter, we really, you know, had a bigger, had a bigger plan together. and. And it made all the sense in the world. And if something were to happen with wine, it would sort of lightning would strike twice. You know, <laughs> it would have to strike again. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we came here in 2000. And I kind of filed away what I'd learned, that inspiration, um, and, and thought, you know, we'll get back to that, or sort of. Mm -hmm. yeah. What did you know about Oregon's wine industry at the time when you moved here? Uh, a bit. I, I, through my wine geekdom, I had the wines, the early wines of Domaine Duran, uh, Yves Shimwood. I remember the, the, uh, the, the year after we moved here, the, the importer that also sold at retail in California that I'd worked for, they introduced Yves Shimwood through their newsletter. I was like, I've heard of them. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was very funny. I think their model has changed. Uh, but the idea was, uh, I'd had exposure to a number of the wines, not all terrific, but there was a particular shop in San Francisco that while they didn't focus in Oregon, certainly had an Oregon, uh, had carried a number of Oregon wines as they carried wines from around the world. And they had a little opportunity to go down there and they'd have bottles open on a bar and you could kind of taste a little bit and pay basically a fractional cost of the wine. And so I'd go in there after work on Friday and pour myself little one ounce samples of things and. And, uh, and, you know, for $2 or something, you could get a, some of the bottle of the $20 Domaine Drouin, you know, 92 Pinot Noir. 
And then they had the, the Lorraine, oh, there's some special new bottling. And I remember it not being any other price than I thought, or any different price than I remember thinking that was interesting. I think that was just at the very beginning and went good for them. But I remember those wines were terrific. Those 92s really stuck with me. Um, being young wines, I'd love to try them again. But uh, I tried some other ones, and I also live right across the street from, I probably should have spent more time with this one, from the Ashbury Market in San Francisco. Mm -hmm which uh, at the time was, had a terrific wine shop and as part of this kind of old-timey grocery in an old Victorian and you know in the middle of San Francisco and their wine director uh, Debbie Zacharias I always wonder if I pronounce her last name right she's uh, I, I think a partner now in the Ferry, Mer Ferry Plaza wine merchant there and is, is very much I mean, very involved <laughs> very high-level person in wine and uh, but she was sort of the wine buyer at this place, uh, at the Ashbury Market, and she loved Oregon wine, or had kind of a passion, and maybe it'd probably come up here, maybe she, I don't know, who knows, but mm -hmm. she stocked the Oregon wine press <laughs> from McMinnville. <laughs> the old one that was you know, before, mm -hmm. before Hillary Berg and company took it over, and, uh, and so I would read the, the monthly Oregon wine press, because she would always have it. And things like that, though, really mattered. And they would have interviews, even just kind of hokey, funky things. And mm -hmm. um, but things like that, actually, point of fact, you know, the person who would deliver, make those deliveries, or somehow get the thing. They're like, why are we sending Coles to Newcastle, Oregon wine in California? But I read it, and <laughs> I was really influenced by it. And I guess so, I was sort of primed mm -hmm. to be, to, to think about Oregon wine. Um, and specifically Pinot Noir at the time, being so you know focused on that at the time, uh, uh, it seemed mm -hmm. the, the Willamette Valley. Um, but also where I worked in 1999, or I didn't work harvest. I, I volunteered for a number of days and got paid in wine. But but I basically over the course of a season got to do a lot. It was really a great experience. Um, the producer that the, how, the home producer made some Oregon wine in California. Mm. And so I also remember tasting wines in barrel from their, uh, you know, they were making Archery Summit Vineyard Pinot Noir in the late 90s, which was like, how do you even know about their, and I didn't know, that's how I was introduced mm -hmm. to that vineyard, for example. But I just was kind of primed in many ways through my own discovery, through honestly the Oregon Wine Press and, and Debbie Zacharias and, uh, uh, and, and, and then it just sort of kept building. And while my, my wife and I thought to come to Oregon for separate reasons, really we just wanted to be in the Willamette Valley, again, it was in the back of my mind, like if I were to do work in wine, that's, to me it just seemed like, it, it seemed, it still seems this way, the most exciting place in North America for wine. And there's a lot of exciting places for wine. But I just feel like there's something special here, and I felt like I tasted it and knew it in the 90s before I lived here. Um, and I, I only feel it strong, you know, more strongly, certainly no less. Um, so yeah, it was uh, an interesting kind of thread of how to, I learned about Oregon wine. Uh, and when I came here, I was very ready and interested in kind of jumping in. And frankly, through the wine internet, uh, I already knew of a number of people who said, hey, once you get here, let us know, let us know. we'll get together, or show you around, take you out to a winery, whatever, just kind of be a friend, basically, mm -hmm. a kind of a, a wine welcome wagon. Uh, <laughs> uh, these people not being on the wagon, but I kid. Uh, the idea of just sharing though, this passion, and some of the people who 
I knew through this, you know, virtually knew were makers here mm -hmm. uh, who connected me to, uh, to grapes ultimately as a home wine maker. And then eventually when I even worked Harvest for uh, one year, uh, another, I still buy two of them actually. I work with their vineyards, people I knew back then, one who didn't even have a vineyard <laughs> you know, until 15 years ago, but 20 years ago. And, was just a, a just, if you will, quote unquote, a, a wine geek like I was at the mm -hmm. time. And so it's really interesting to see how connections mm -hmm. that got me into winemaking also helped me certainly make, make take root, if you will, mm -hmm. here in mm -hmm. Oregon and mm -hmm. Oregon wines. So. But I didn't jump in right away to making, you know, sort of fully. And, uh, and mostly I was for family reasons. It just was not the best time uh, with little kids. Mm -hmm and a desire to not, uh, recognizing that wasn't going to last forever. Mm -hmm. And so I might wait a few years and, and see if we could do that. And now it's all, not all in the rear view mirror, but <laughs> any waiting or any sort of, mm -hmm. you know, kind of putting off. At the time, might have seemed like a big deal, but now you look back and it's, you know, it was, a, it was, it was the right, smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. and, and it gave me time to just sort of also build a little more organically. Uh, let my my you know my ultimate interest develop and what I what I really wanted to do you know what why I wanted to make wine mm -hmm. um, you know you could just say well why not you know it, for me it made I really wanted to answer it a little more deeply and it gave me time to do that um, so yeah. so tell me about that first step then after you you, you you take some time you meet some people you yeah. kind of learn about Oregon wine yeah what's your first step into the industry here. The first step was uh, to, to really, it wasn't so much to the industry, but it was making wine at home. Mm -hmm. A person I had worked or sort of mentored me in California in that 1999 harvest had been a home winemaker who had quote unquote gone pro um, and, and really taught me at the basic level, like, yeah, you know, just because you make good cookies, you can't just go to market with them. You have to make it in a kitchen that's regulated and mm -hmm. licensed, mm -hmm. et cetera. And wine is pretty much the same. You can't just make home wine and take it to the store. But what this guy did was, it, both for his own enjoyment, he didn't know where, I probably didn't necessarily know where this was going when it started, I wonder. I guess I didn't know where I was going when it started, really. But uh, I figure I'm going to try and make really good commercial quality wine at home. And I'm going to try and do it again and even again and get it out to people, you know, friends. Hey, taste this. Family members, hey, try this. And it not be, um, you know, like, hey, you know, my Uncle Fred's, you know, rot gut made in the bathtub. But actually, like, oh, my God, this is homemade. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I work with such and such vineyard. They're like, how do you get that fruit? Like, well, I'm pretty serious about this. I've got to know the grower and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. make it easy on them, etc. I sort of apprenticed with a guy who had made one seriously at home and essentially gone pro. And during that time also worked in wineries, got, got more experience. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of emulated that. And, mm -hmm. and so even with little babies in 01, 02, 03, I made wine at home. Um, it really not very good wine. The one advice I couldn't quite listen to was uh, here, right, was make at least, make a commercial amount. I mean, I, I, I like to joke, like, you can't make a tiny birthday cake. Like, it's all outside. You need enough cake, you know, for the outside, the inside, the whole thing. You need enough proportion mm -hmm. for, for, for a thing to be the thing. And, in, and the toughest thing at home wine making, besides junky fruit, is even if you have grapefruit, you try to make five gallons of something, you just have one little carboy or jug. It's, it's hard not to get, have it oxidized. It's hard to get a fermentation that really, you know, is mm -hmm. like really gonna, look, you know, make the wine 
with a depth. Uh, mm -hmm. You had to make a commercial amount. And so those first few years, I wasn't quite sure and thought, well, I'll just dabble with five and 10 gallons of this and that, and I did okay. But, but uh, it took through a few things. I met people through my wine interests and through more wine internet stuff and just other, just friends of friends and somebody, and you meet people around here, oh, I'm in wine, okay. Come help with bottling. I remember helping a few people with bottling. God bless all the bottlers, because it's the, my least favorite thing, but it's very important. And, uh, and so I've done some time myself. And, <laughs> and I encourage if anyone wants to come help with bottling, you too can help. It's, it's much needed. Um, so I would do what I, I could do. But to be honest, I was like, all right, I'm going to try and make wine. I'm going to try and get production help. But I had a day job. We had little kids. You know, I was kind of carrying the benefits. I couldn't just like quit my day job and go work in a winery. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, I could like do Saturdays in a tasting room. I could do something. Mm -hmm. And I remember interviewing for tasting room appointment uh, things. One place turned me down because I was I seemed too knowledgeable. <laughs> and and I think they meant I was just like I was. They're like I understand it now, but at the time I was like, what are you talking about? So I was just a, an unaware guy, I think. <laughs> but I also uh, probably wasn't going to stay very long, mm -hmm. and they knew that. And so whatever the case was, uh, basically, they could, they could tell. But I remember being like, I can't get a tasting room job. Then another, the place I helped with bottling said, hey, you can work in our tasting room. Come for an interview, though. And I show up, and they're like, you were supposed to be here yesterday at 11, not today. So I got the day right today. <laughs> I walked out of there like, are you kidding me? How do I? How do I get a job in a wine? Like, this is insane. <laughs> I really never felt so uh, um, uh, incapable. But the idea was that I, I thought, OK, here was a way I could get experience, make connections, share my love of wine, and learn, um, but not quit my day job. And, and, and also, maybe, uh, then maybe like, hey, you could come help with Harvest or something. And well, I'd have to do it in a pretty flexible way and mm -hmm. keep my day job. And mm -hmm. oh, yeah, no, nights and weekends kind of thing or whatever. And so uh, th that never happened. I could never get the tasting room job. Um, probably just as well. It's, it probably would be my best place. But it was really a weird, I tried. <laughs> um, so I was just scrapping for, 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 for any experience I could get mm -hmm. besides making wine in the garage at home that really wasn't very good and um, and one day I was I was actually at a, a, a job my day job related thing and I just kind of had this like proverbial come to Jesus moment where you're like I gotta work harvest like really work like back on track like 99 but more but not lose my day job <laughs> but you know what I work I, at the time I worked for Portland State and the one thing you got was more paid time off than I could use I didn't make a lot of money, so we couldn't go on fancy vacations and, and take all the take the two kids. But so I could flex and take time mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, basically work several harvest days mm -hmm. and work weekends. Mm -hmm. um, and there were many days when I, I worked for you know five for a winery and you know, six for another winery and seven and eight for other wineries still, where I might go to the day job and. And they'd say, hey, be here at 2. The fruit's going to be start showing up, and we'll work, you know, 2 to, like, 10 or something and, and have a little dinner break and, and during. And I'd be like, great. And I'd get out of there at 10 o'clock and just be like, that was awesome. <laughs> you know, I want to come back or I want more. Mm -hmm. And i get up, go to the day job, and then maybe that next day do the same thing. Or they're like, oh, no, no fruit's coming in, but come the next day. In fact, could you be here all day? Like, great, yeah, I have flexibility. I got that day off. 
um, just taking some vacation time. And uh, to some degree, I would have, you know, you use it or lose it. Mm -hmm. So here was a great, like, I can, like, really try and get serious about this and see if I don't. People are like, well, Vincent, what are you doing? I'm trying to shake the habit, kind of. I, I, I apparently like this, but I have a feeling if I keep doing it, maybe I'll be like, oh, yeah. I get tired of washing <laughs> barrels. I get tired of cleaning fermenters. I get tired of sorting fruit and setting up the line, tearing down the line, cleaning the press, and just, and it's not so much that I never got tired of it, but honestly, I guess I never got tired of it. <laughs> like, I, I would be happy to do any of that stuff right now. If that's what we were doing, like, all right, we're done, let's go do that. I'd be like, oh, cool. Not just I know how to do it, but like, you know, we're gonna like, do, this is, we're gonna make wine, this is great. You know, I just, I kind of still have it. And, uh, and, and, but at some base level, I was just like, Let's try and shake this. Let's shake this idea. Let's really, you know, let's see if you really want to stay on this ride. And I kept wanting to do it. And so, and the good news is, I found, at least in Oregon, though I'm sure it's true in many places, if not everywhere, um, there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of there's a lot of excitement about wine. And there's a lot of excitement about people who are legitimately excited mm -hmm. about wine. And I, I, legitimate, I don't mean like I shouldn't use that word. Who are deeply excited about wine, meaning not just today, and that was fun, but I'll come back tomorrow, mm -hmm. and next week, and the next week, and not just do the work, but also care about what we're doing, so we didn't just, you know, process 10 tons of fruit, but we really did a good job, and, 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 and taste the juice, or whatever metric mm -hmm. of from, a, from, a, from a wine perspective, mm -hmm. of like, we are making wine here. Um, people's real interest in that and yet willingness to work all night in pursuit of that um, those two things don't always happen you can find people who work 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 and we'll take those in the winery any day get some wine lovers who don't really like that was fun but I'll never come back because that's not my work that's fine too but like that I thought I might you know mm -hmm. basically work a couple days proverbially and then filter away I'm still at it but but really when you're in you could have a great worker or employee or something but if they're not that into wine there's a limitation because they really they, it's a, to cook I don't know. I mean, I, I, there's no absolutes. You could have somebody, you could have well, was, you know, a composer who's, who's deaf. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you don't have to hear your own music to be great at it or something. Um, but it does seem like if you have that passion and a desire to really work it and do it, and, and from the vine to the cellar to ultimately selling the wine, um, you know, that's, that's something special. And I basically uh, felt like I was interested in any aspect of the work and kind of interested to keep coming back and it's amazing the doors that open and I don't think that's uh, certainly only here but certainly here in Oregon in the Willamette Valley I just find um, such an there's such a spirit of of, of our progress and, and, and how far we've come and as new an industry in the modern age as we are um, and typically when you find a winery like there's no team Vincent, I'm it, and, and whoever helps at Harvest. Or, mm -hmm. Again, thank you bottling volunteers, or oh, pay, but you know, basically people come out for day work or something. Um, but it's not like some, you know, oh, and there's, there's the staff through the glass. You watch them all making the wine. Like, no, we get after it and do it. <laughs> and that whole big circle, and we, we enjoy, and I think, you know, appreciate good wine or interested. So often in wine, you find people are be like, 
oh, these French wines this early. I don't know. Like, yeah, what grape is it? I can't even tell. It would be like being in a rock band and never listening to the Beatles or something. Like, <laughs> I don't know. They're English, you know. <laughs> it's kind of far. <laughs> like, it, it, and I don't mean to be, you know, kind of funny about that, but, but really, I, I, I feel like having that full depth of what we're doing in this culture of wine, this world of wine, a history of wine, um, and we're at, at a point you know, before all the events to come and certainly at the point on top of all the events that have happened, um, I just found a particular kinship with others in this field here who are really interested in more than just, you know, we're just growing grapes and I don't know, who cares where it goes, you know. <laughs> As somebody who doesn't own grapes, I'm always asked, am I concerned? Um, I won't have access to the fruit that I get. and. And not yet, certainly, but one of the things is because growers, and I find this true to this day, they're very excited if you aren't just going to blend away their fruit into some macro lot, or, or just that they'd be excited about the wine that you make mm -hmm. from it, and it's not just like, wow, the big, big winery says they were doing well with our fruit, and like, and they have a bit, we don't really like their wine, we don't like, we'd rather work with you. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I think you get that a lot, and it's, you know, it's just sort of a, a certain uh, esprit of, of, of wine here that, uh, for whatever reason, I, it really connected with me, connects with me, and I feel like, I'd like to think something I've brought to it is, is contributing to that, mm -hmm. and that is part why, so far, been successful. <laughs> We're still here. <laughs> still here, still making. Still doing it. So, so tell me about uh, some of the, maybe some of the places you worked, some of the, some of the stops you made, some of the mentors you had. Yeah. And, and at what point you decided it was time to do your own label? Certainly. Um, I, I, because of the, the California uh, background that I had and the, the person I worked with, who I don't like to get into because I one time in an interview <laughs> spoke all lovingly. And the way it ended up coming out was somehow it was this like co-opting thing. It was it, I was like, ooh, that wasn't good. I need media training. <laughs> but the idea being that you, I never like to talk about people unless they'd be comfortable or somehow it'd be <laughs> like, hey, dude, you know, you were just sort of helping us out as a total greenhorn. It's like that's true, but it meant so much to me. <laughs> it meant so much to me that I could lose track of the, the is there business you're talking about. The point of all that is. The inspiration I had originally was to do my own thing. Um, and so the idea of my apprenticeship here in Oregon was really to build my own thing and it wasn't so much that I was going to work for others and then decided to do my own thing. But I really thought, no, the way I want to do this, if it were to happen, is I want to, I want to make wine. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's, I think it's something I, I think it's something I'm good at. I think it's something that, you know, and I think, um, I think there's a need for the kind of wines I'm trying to make, personally, mm -hmm. without that being like crazy or ostentatious or something. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you, I guess if you didn't feel that, you probably shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, there are others who are kind of after similar things to me, but I feel like there could always be more, and I encourage others as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and so my apprenticeship was just that, full-time job, so aside, I shouldn't say, I mean, apprenticeship can be full-time. But it was a, uh, uh, a true apprenticeship where I, I was either working for very low pay or in trade for fruit or whatever it may be, um, and trying to just gain experience. And trying to work with people who made wine on the scale and with a general intention 
of 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 of, my, of me or what I thought I'd be after, and uh, and so it would make sense, you know, if you want to be a sushi chef, you know, and have your own little place, you probably should apprentice with somebody who's doing that rather than work at the Red Lobster and run a restaurant, but but really maybe learn a lot of wrong lessons. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And in that way, so I sought out Russ Rainey at Evesham Wood, Russ and Mary Rainey, uh, who started Evesham Wood in the 80s. Those wines have been and are, remain an inspiration to me. Uh, and for me, it was a funny story because we had an ice storm uh, and I was stuck in my house and I thought, well, maybe they are too. So I'll give them a call. <laughs> and sure enough, for us being a nice guy, answered the phone. And, uh, and I said, you don't know me, but I want to, could I come work harvest? And this was, you know, January. And he's like, oh, you're in luck. The people I'd lined up. And here I'm thinking, you already had people lined up? I think you've been doing it a while. And if he said they're coming from Germany, they might not be able to come. And, uh, and, 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 and he, had, he has a couple other people, but this one particular slot, essentially. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'll call you in a month, maybe. And he's such a great guy. He called me in a month, and maybe became yes. And though he didn't put it this way, I essentially did work a day with him in the cellar in the summer. Uh, just to make, probably make sure I'm, you know, I'm okay, mm -hmm. and I, I passed. So, uh, uh, but he, uh, you know, and they sold their business several years ago, and, uh, and I love how you know things have continued on. And it's just mm -hmm. such a great reference point producer for us. Um, certainly, of Pinot Noir, but hardly only Pinot Noir. Um, I, I just I, I dove in, you know, kind of head first, and that was the 2005 harvest. Uh, and worked as much as I could and, and established in my work day-to-day -day life how I could do this. And so by 2006, I had reached out to Brian O'Donnell at Belpont uh, Winery. And uh, Brian and Jill O'Donnell um, have become just, you know, they're such great people. And, and uh, you know, I don't ever want to overstate friendship. I've just known them for years mm -hmm. and even our, our daughters went to high school together mm -hmm. and it's just crazy ways the world entwines and Brian had connected me he was somebody I knew through the wine internet back in the late 90s and when I moved here he connected me to some some great sources mm -hmm. uh, for who might you know vineyards that were very serious commercial vineyards but who might especially be said oh hey Brian told me like oh we'll sell you, you know Brian okay we'll sell you some fruit and uh, as long as you show up, don't make trouble and pay. <laughs> and growers, you know, grow, grower at the base level keep people happy. If you just show up, don't make fuss, and 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 and, and come with money, and it's like you're all good. All still, all still true today. <laughs> it's, it's really, it is true. It is so true. But but, uh, but uh, so so I was able to work there in 2006. I kind of job shared there. Um, their need was bigger than Evesham Wood's need for the harvest sort of slot position. And so it was going to be a basically full-time, you would practically live there. And I couldn't do that. But they're like, we have somebody who's going to basically do half-time. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could do the half-time. And so I did that and made that work. And, and that was... Uh, you know, that was just a great experience. I learned so much. And then a guy who's, who's like a brother to me, who becomes such a dear friend, John Groshoff, Groshoff Cellars, GC hmm. Wines. And he, uh, at the time, was making wine on Ribbon Ridge, uh, and then uh, later moved into a facility uh, that he shared in the city. And I worked uh, for him in 07 and 08. And it was all that time where I was making wine on my own at home, uh, in part from 
you know, fantastic commercial vineyards like Wall Vineyard in the Amhill Carlton or Meredith Mitchell Vineyard in McMinnville, Zenith Vineyard, which I still work with in the Yellow Hills, all as a home winemaker and, and uh, uh, you know, small amounts, like half ton here, mm -hmm. half ton there. But a, but, a, but a barrel amount for Pinot Noir that was a commercial unit that effectively was a proper size birthday cake that you could really, and to this day, these wines I made from the mid to late uh, you know, 2000s, yeah, I, would, I would happily pour them in a, in a tasting, and I, and I have actually in several with, with commercial wines, and they've acquitted themselves pretty well, and um, I feel good about that. Uh, and so I was, you know, apprenticing at the wineries, trying to apply what I was learning uh, at home, and, and mostly learning to let go and make wine in a very simple, hands-off way, which is really, I think, for me, critical to the, to the wine and wine culture I'm most interested in, um, and uh, where, where wine is, is of a place and of a time, maybe of a grape, rather than, you know, something that we kind of bring it in and then we're going to rearrange stuff and then put out the best thing we can. I always want to make the best wine I can. But I really want, like with children, you know, I, if that person's five six and 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 has brown hair, great. <laughs> You're six two and you got curly hair, great. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to like. Yeah, I really want to take the grapes and take the years as they come. And so, I really found that through my own apprenticeship, it was interesting. I was just. Uh, uh, talking with somebody about uh, the 2005 vintage, working with Russ Rainey at Eastern Wood. It rained a whole bunch right at the beginning of that harvest. And, uh, and I remember how calm he was and how kind of reflective. He's like, well, you know, we'll pick, we, we see this rain coming, so we're going to pick some this, you know, today and tomorrow. And then, and then we're going to, it looks like we'll have a lot of rain. And then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll resume picking once it dries out, give it a couple days to dry out. And I kind of just learned sort of a, a, a kind of one norm approach to inevitable weather, uh, which, you know, is not always a problem. The weather is just what it is. It's a natural phenomenon and sometimes it will rain and that's fine. We don't want, you know, the typhoon remnants or something. But, but, uh, but I just remember how calm he was and how kind of all, it wasn't like everything relied on this lot of grapes. And it wasn't like this lot of grapes wasn't unimportant at all. But this is a much bigger thing than this one lot of grapes. <laughs> and, and so you really could understand of how, how to try and get the best out of each, each lot you bring in, each vineyard you work with without kind of you know, overstressing about it and or overcompensating um, and, and trying to either do too much or just do the wrong things. So, so I was apprenticing, applying what I learned, keeping my day job, <laughs> and, uh, and that was all successful. But each night, it, you know, I shouldn't, it's not so linear, but over the time, a lot of what I've done, though, is also just reduced technique. You know, if you're going to punch down the fermenters twice a day, maybe once a day, maybe not every day, maybe not most days, you know, let's, yeah, little by little, I both learn this from others and just gain from my own experience. Uh, approaches that, that I have my sort of approach today, it's not just one thing, but kind of, but it is, I do have my kind of general approach. Mm -hmm. and, and I really honed it over all those years. So it's, it's fun to think back and to recognize at the time I didn't know where I was all leading, but that was okay too. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of as an industry, yeah, I wonder where we're going, but I think it's good. <laughs> at least, you know, mm -hmm. it could be a lot worse. <laughs> so at what point did you make your own, your first commercial 
2009. So 2009, I made uh, I'd made wine in 2008 from Zenith Vineyard, and in 2009, I contracted for uh, my own fruit from Zenith from one particular block that I've worked with actually ever since. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then another vineyard uh, in the Amity Hills, mm -hmm. and I made two two wines, all Pinot Noir, one Zenith Vineyard bottling, and then. Most of the nine barrel production was the Eola Amity Hills Cuvée. Mm -hmm. And so a blend of the two vineyards, predominantly the other, which was most of the production. Mm -hmm. I think that was about three and a half tons, about nine barrels and change of wine. Got about 220 cases in bottle. And I was off, you know, I had a day job, but I was selling wine by late 2010 and making more. Um, adding a vineyard on Ribbon Ridge that had just come into production, Armstrong. Uh, and uh, and then with each year as it grew, production grew. Uh, by 2012, I added Chardonnay. I started to make Chardonnay, mm -hmm. and I really started out focused on Pinot Noir. And um, rather than uh, be a producer who kind of has, you know, I make ten different things, and I've, I've kind of grown to where I work with five different grape varieties. But I still feel like they're all of a family. They all kind of have a purpose in what I'm doing. Uh, sometimes wine production can seem like, you know, chicken, sushi, pizza, you know, it's kind of like we got it all. And, uh, and, and, and like I, I'm always like, what are you really into? Mm -hmm. I was really into and I'm really into Pinot Noir and its, its expression of place. And, uh, and so I started with Pinot Noir. But I did know that as we went, I would work with other varieties. wasn't exactly sure what. Gamay I knew for sure. I waited a little long because it was my reward ultimately for going full time. This typically comes in later, just extends the harvest. Every harvest with the day job was like, was like playing chicken on the road. Like, and if you made it, you're like, whew, like you didn't want to add more. <laughs> like, I don't get fired. And I, you know, so Camay just seemed like, might get fired. And uh, I thought maybe someday if I can go full time, I could then make Camay. By that time, it had gained popularity, and so it's harder to source good fruit and mm -hmm. or to source any fruit. So uh, I wish I'd locked in Gamay a little earlier, but I do make and, <laughs> and make it successfully. Um, but the uh, but yeah, Pinot Noir to start, a couple hundred cases, and uh, and really again focusing on on place. Really, <laughs> the most interesting wines to me, I label by their place, specific vineyard you know, the, the, the next sort of tier regional wines by their kind of appellation. And then mm -hmm. for me, the main, the, the base level of my wines are represent kind of our regional areas, the Willamette Valley. And so I kind of use that kind of naming system. Mm -hmm. The finer the wine, the more specific to a place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Almost, I have, one, I have one wine that kind of bucks that. It's more about later bottling, but. But yeah, it's really the passion, and even though I've added more grapes and it's still about um, wines of place. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, I can't remember what I was going to ask you. I had this great question. <laughs> uh, uh, I can't remember where I was going. Oh, yes, that's where I was going. So tell me about the logistics of starting. Tell me about the, the name, the label, getting yeah. all the things you have to do while still balancing family, full-time job. Yeah, the, well, the, the good news is I had time to think about these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The name had come about after several years of searching um, 
originally I was like, well, maybe it's just going to be called Vincent, but there's got to be some. That just seems like, oh, it's all about me. Or, and so I went around, I, I, my grandmother, my mother's mother, and she was married, her, her husband was Vincent, so my grandfather was Vincent Jones. And my grandmother, Elizabeth Jones, she, we called her Mio, M-E-O. Mm -hmm. And so I had this idea around the middle of the 2005, 2006, I even labeled some homemade wine, maybe 04, with the label Mio, M-E-O. And uh, of course the Jean Mayo Camuset in Burgundy and now the, the uh, Nicolas Jay, uh project Mayo or Mio is their name. Even then I was like, I don't think that would hold up. <laughs> you know, it'd be like naming uh, you know, naming a wine, you know, Petrus or something. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So it was kind of funny. For me, actually I mentioned it to my parents. I thought my mom would be honored and she's like, Why would you name a wine you know after her? So I, like, I don't know, that's a good question. It was sort of a novelty scratch. <laughs> so um, I, you know, good grief. With the name, I remember going around in circles and ultimately came back to Vincent. Um, you know, it's my name. And while it's funny that my wines aren't about so much me, they're about what they are, um, Vincent's the patron saint of winemakers. You know, Vin is in the name. <laughs> People can say it, spell it, remember it even. Um, the only question was, there are a lot of Vincents, there are other wineries, and, 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 and you know, if, if, if you're a French winemaker, Vincent, you know, if you had a few, I bet there's a Vincent in there, and so it's a common name in the world of wine, and yet there's no specific Vincent wine company, and I did some research and actually wrote letters to a number of different producers of variants of Vincent and ask them, you know, hey, here's what I'm doing, I didn't soft sell it, like, I'm just going to be some nobody in the garage making a little wine. I was like, I'm looking to make commercial wine, you know, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I'm going to be Vincent Wine Company, and you are blah, 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 Vincent, or Vincent something or other. And if that's a problem, let me know. And if that's, if that's a problem, let me know how you've dealt with everyone else who's <laughs> Vincent. Because maybe there's a secret handshake. Maybe there's a club. Maybe they trade secrets, industry trade, you know, industry things. So um, it turned out no, there's not. But um, while it's hard to trademark a person's name, there's sort of safety in the numbers that there was no specific events in one company. And and I got call even from somebody who used to work for Gala, who I was particularly worried about because mm -hmm. I, I think of them as being, uh, you know, in their own way, rightfully litigious and protective of their name. I mean. But there have been absurd tales of, I had a friend whose Thunder Mountain wines were a threat because of Thunderbird. And, and it just seemed like, I never thought about that. But okay, so here I was afraid that there might be, you know, there's some, some little issue. But really, they were like, again, you can't be our name, specifically. <laughs> and, but otherwise, like, if you need any help, it was, they were sort of like, you know, give us a holler, you know, welcome to the club, kind of, you know. Good on you for getting out there and making some wine. It was, it was like, oh, awesome. Uh, and amazing. so, yeah, it was amazing. It was really interesting. And so the name ultimately was very simple, but I had to go through a number of machinations to kind of get there. And then label design, I, I worked with a woman named Angie Reed, who, uh, with her uh, husband, Matt Burson, make uh, Love and Squalor wines. Um, Portland Wine Company in Portland, they're great. Um, the wines are great. And Angie designed my label. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I just think she did a great job. We would meet in a cafe that had wood tables. And I put a bottle on it. And I said, essentially, I want the wine to look good. 
on this kind of shaker-like table, you know. I want it to be sort of timeless and beautiful, elegant, but not, yeah, I want it to, like it might look simple to begin with, and I kind of envision the wines might, people are like, oh, those are nice wines, but oh, they'll age well, and or, God, they keep being interesting. An hour later, it was even more interesting. And then the kind of my, the wines that I'm interested in most, I kind of want to design to kind of ideally try and capture that. So it's sort of a, 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 a maybe understated, mm -hmm. uh, you know, quality. And I, I just feel like she nailed it uh, with, with just the very simple font and then uh, kind of the slight movement and the it's a shaft of weed mm -hmm. kind of stylized so sometimes people think it's a fern but ultimately it doesn't matter to me what people think it is it's more that it represents kind of a simple natural form mm -hmm. that is that is moving or has sort of a, a dynamic quality about it uh, and that's essentially how I want not exactly for somebody to describe my wine but if they said something about that that the wine's more, it just doesn't hit you. It sort of seems to move and <laughs> roll or otherwise uh, have, have its own dynamic kind of energy. <laughs> like, or if they just say, oh, it's pretty. You know, it's, it's like something more beautiful than powerful, you know? <laughs> <laughs> something more uh, reflective than like blew your head off <laughs> and you had to like gather yourself. I'm not really looking for quite for that. Um, Maybe they emotionally gather yourself. But in any event, I just, it was a great process of, of working with a very talented designer who, while well, I think laid it out fairly simply, it took us a while to get to that point, meaning I had a hard time articulating what the hell I really wanted. And she <laughs> bared with me. And, uh, and we had lots of coffee and pastries over a few months. And, and, uh, and so it was great, too, so I didn't really want to change I, I was hoping that, like, we'll say this works, and I do it for a number of years. It would be great if the label didn't have to change. Mm -hmm. um, and so far, so good. Um, I will make, I think, I've since gotten reading glasses, so I want to, sometimes I find I want to, like, pinch zoom to, you know, make the font bigger. <laughs> but you can only do that on your phone so, or a screen. But um, <laughs> do you ever do that? Mm -hmm. You want to pinch zoom something in real life? Um, so yeah, I think I do want to increase the font a little bit. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, I just have been very happy with how it, uh, I think, reflects what's in the bottle. And, um, and yet at the same time, people never say to me, and I, I oh, I love your wine because of the packaging. I'm like, yeah, I don't really want that. <laughs> I want you to buy it. I want it to look good, but I don't want that to be, you know. <laughs> but they'll tell you what they think, so. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, when, when you started making commercial wine, you were making it in Portland? Port I did. So, so John Groshaw of Groshaw Cellars, I essentially, my wine was produced as a custom crush uh, winery under his bond in, in his facility in Portland for the first three years, so mm -hmm. 09, 10, and 11. And then I moved my production to what was just opening at that time, the Southeast Wine Collective. Mm -hmm. um, so it was uh, four producers at the start, of course, the home winery uh, division winemaking company, uh, who's still there. Mm -hmm. uh, the others have gone on to, to, to their things. But all of us actually came to the facility having made wine before, 
and had, you know, I was in the year four of my commercial production and obviously many years more of making wine. Um, but it was interesting how that facility became kind of like the story of it says an incubator. And while we weren't brand new, there was definitely a, a, a further gestation, a further kind of maturation. and. That, that happened while I was there, and I worked, I made my wine there in 12, 13, and 14. And then uh, after that, went full-time in my business. And it wasn't just because of that, but it all came together so that I, I found space, but out here in, in the valley, uh, where I had been instrumental and, and, and very vocal about making wine in the city of Portland, being part of the urban winery kind mm -hmm. of movement. Um, it, it's interesting, and that's a, a great thing. And, and it, I did find that in my, my customer conversations, if you come and taste with me, I wouldn't talk about where I made the wine nearly as much as where the fruit is from, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. where the wine's from. And so it became somewhat across purposes to be talking about where I was making the wine, or specifically that it was in the city. Mm -hmm. um, whereas for others, I think it's, it's critical, especially if you do a lot of on-premise or other kinds of things, there's, there's uh, so much opportunity. And I was very much interested, and still am, but I was, at the time, interested in making wine in the city and almost literally you know, rolling up the garage door on a cellar, and some people are walking by like, what are you doing? And they're like, come on in. And it's a way to connect and break down the kind of the mystery and, and the, the, the tradition of wine. The first question everyone would ask me is, and still do, is where's your vineyard? And, uh, and so the answer was, we're like a brewery or a restaurant. The ingredients, if you will, come from very nearby, but not right here. Mm -hmm. And that still was sometimes was, usually they were like, wow, that's great. Or if they really believed you, sometimes they say, oh, come on. Now, really, where do you make the line? Like, right here. Like, really? <laughs> Off division? Like, who knew? But, you, you know, but, it, it, but at times it felt like you were fighting their expectation mm -hmm. of something. Especially when I was like, when that's all great, let's talk about Armstrong Vineyard, or let's talk about Temperance Hill Vineyard, mm -hmm. or, or Bjornsson Vineyard, and what these places taste like, or what they may taste like, as far as uh, in, in the hands, you know, in my winemaking. Um, and, uh, and so, ultimately, it made sense to have the production be closer to the grapes. I also, it just, there's so much more infrastructure out here. Mm -hmm and a lack of, 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 of just theft of things out of a parking lot or, or whatever it might be, where out in the country can, you know, be a little more easy in mm -hmm. terms of worrying about, you know, somebody gonna walk off with that metal or something. And so, um, for a number of reasons then, you know, starting in 2015, production has been out here in, in the Eola Hills mm -hmm. proper. And, mm -hmm. and over those years, I've actually now bonded my own, my own space and I share the space bonded with another winery, but but uh, but I have my own basically space and make do some custom crush wine making um, uh, as as well now mm -hmm. myself, you know, for others. So it's uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how it's it's grown. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the as you were you were kind of right in the middle of the growing urban wine scene as it yeah. was becoming a thing. Tell me yeah. about what that was like uh, being in Portland and having and seeing watching that scene kind of grow. Terrific <laughs> and and really cool because so many different people. It's not that I mean there are different people making wine even in the Old Hills or mm -hmm. Ribbon Ridge, but there's really a difference in the Portland and that was part of of both our allure. Um, and the opportunity, meaning that 
it was just as easy to drive fruit from the Willamette Valley to Portland as from the you know, the gorge, mm -hmm. from the Columbia Valley, from the Umpqua, from mm -hmm. you know full Southern Oregon, Applegate or, or Rogue Valleys. Um, and so in Portland, you have people making wines, and it's an X. If it's X, Y, and Z axis, you mm -hmm. you don't just have different Dundee Hills makers who may also make Ribbon Ridge or this or that. You have you know, seven bridges making Cabernets and Merlots from, from Walla Walla and, and the Columbia Valley. Mm -hmm. and, and you have the, 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 the modern founders of urban winemaking in, in Portland, uh, the Hip Chicks do wine, mm -hmm. making wines from Oregon. Uh, so from the Willamette Valley, from Southern Oregon, uh, you have people just doing all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I thought that richness really added to my perspective as a winemaker because I really was and I admittedly am very exclusively Willamette Valley centric and while I enjoy uh, and, 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 and taste and drink the wines of the broader Northwest I really didn't have a lot of experience making them and while I wasn't on top of all the urban winemakers and while they were making the wine I was definitely in those cellars a lot more than I you know than I would have been and I really got, you know, I got to know Alder Springs Vineyard this and just different, uh, not even concerns, but opportunities. Mm -hmm. Oh, here, Vincent, we're, we smell this Mavedra, you know, like we don't grow Mavedra in this valley, you know. And so uh, it just kind of opened things up even creatively and thinking about working with different fruit. At the time, I was Pinot Noir exclusive, and while I remained Willamette Valley exclusive, I don't make Mavedra, though, still a dream. Uh, but, I, but essentially, it caused me to branch out and not just be super Pinot-centric. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And there was just a real camaraderie, a, a uh, you know, there's sort of that, uh, as I said, people will say, so, you know, where do you make the wine? Or where do you really make the wine? There was almost sort of, if you're in Portland or in any city, I see this in other cities as well, they'll, you know, there's sort of a, you know, don't forget about us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and or one time somebody asked me, when are you going to get serious and move down to the valley? Like, this wouldn't be serious. Mm -hmm. That's something that an uh, urban wine scene anywhere kind of has to overcome. Mm -hmm. But it is serious and can be just as, if not um, uh, all the more so, or, mm -hmm. or, or just as serious as, as the most serious or whatever. And what does that even mean? That it's just, but that I guess it would mean that we're you know, interested in the culture of wine and not just you know, opening a place and selling a drink. Um, but the idea of Portland winemakers have to fight a little bit more to, to say, hey, don't forget about us. Mm -hmm. and, and on Wine Country Weekend, don't forget you live in wine country in town. <laughs> it may not be the, the farms and fields, but, but we're all, the makers are right here. And so come on the urban trail. And I just found it very exciting. We had a reason to come together and come together. There was just so many different inputs and we had this common kind of desire to share the story of how wine is made in the city can be made in the city and for all the wine country you know uh, uh, you know romance or whatnot a lot of the stuff here is made in the towns of Dundee or McMinnville or it's not just uh, you know on a hilltop which is funny where I find myself now I'm on the Yellow Hills Road no tasting room for me but I do taste by appointment at the winery um, uh, but I'm, I'm I'm truly in a in this rural you know kind of classic setting 
but it isn't like the wine suddenly got good where they weren't. You finally and got so serious. Just, and I did, I suddenly <laughs> got serious. That being said, again, for my own business, I do feel like I'd be swimming against the tide. I don't mm -hmm. need to. Mm -hmm. If I was in Portland, honestly, when I think about it and I were to make wine in Portland, and look at something even like Division Winemaking, which is not a, well, I shouldn't even say they're so Willamette Valley focused, but they've been making Yakima, Chenin Blanc, and they've been making Southern Oregon, you know, wine and whatnot. Uh, and, and that's the opportunity in Portland is to not just be Willamette Valley centric. I guess I chose to remain Willamette Valley, not that I couldn't be there, but if I were in Portland, I'd be looking at Nebbiolo in the gorge. <laughs> and not that you can't do that here in the valley. And I know people who make fantastic Nebbiolo from the gorge here in the valley. Um, it would just seem like that's the opportunity in Portland is to play with different things mm -hmm. than just here. And uh, with all that said, it's been exciting for me now, five years in, to be here in Yamhill County and making wine. Um, you know, in the heart of it all. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that and something that's been uh, rewarding and interesting for me to spend more time than ever, obviously, out in the country. I still live in the city. Um, though I spend enough time at the winery and enough nights over, over the harvest season. I could be a part-time resident. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, though. Yeah. You talked earlier about your winemaking philosophy mm -hmm. and the the idea of yeah. less is more kind of thing. Yeah. Tell me more. Tell me a bit more about how you, you sort of came to that uh, philosophy and, and some of the techniques you use to bring the most out while while doing the the least. Yeah, I mean it's 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 hard to quantify and it's hard to talk about what one does without seemingly or actually denigrating what others do. <laughs> I mean. I view winemaking like music or something. We all have our song, we all have our voice. And if you play violin or I play guitar or you play something else, it, it, we're not dogmatic. Like, why don't you play all this other great instrument? It's like, well, I'm focused. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm choosing a, sort of a focus without being overly, overly so. It's, and plenty of musicians do dabble with other things on the side. One time though I talked with a musician, he's like, I actually had to stop playing guitar because I'm a drummer. And I, if I dabble with guitar, I'm taken away from the drums. I really need to focus professionally. And it's like, wow, that's that's pretty pretty big. The opposite of dogma, an intentional focus. Mm -hmm. But uh, but sometimes we'll say, oh, if you're all this one thing, oh, I have only natural fermentation, and you're so dogmatic. And so for me, ultimately, the, my technique has come from what inspired me about wine is that it can become like wine from grapes. Mm -hmm. Is that they grapes have everything you need and that you don't need to do anything to them. Um, that's sort of what makes them the magical fruit, if you will, uh, and the truly magical fruit. And, uh, and, and no aspersions on bla blackberry wine or dandelion wine or any other kinds of things. Um, but I'm really interested in grape wine. I'm really interested in grapes, grape wine from grapes. Mm -hmm. um, and so it would be like working with wood and just really wanting, like, I want the grain of the wood, I want the, I'm not trying to, like, shellac it into three layers of something where you could just, would feel like it's wet all the time. <laughs> yeah, isn't that an amazing technique or something? They're like, I really want the grain of the wine to show, I want the place, I want the year to show. And in my understanding of wine, probably primarily reading and then talking way back in the day, was that, God, so many of the classic wines, the wines I was most interested in or when I would taste them, 
and they weren't always the fruitiest wines, and they needed more mineral or pepper or all kinds of other aspects that would come out in the wine, or the way they would feel, or maybe some tannin. Uh, think of like a gigandas or the whatever kind of wine that would be just like, man, this is so unlike anything I taste anywhere else. I'm really interested in that, and I typically found um, that the, the less the maker did, carefully, <laughs> the more pure that sort of expression was. And sometimes, oh yeah, they really got into new barrels and they got into this. And like, wow, it kind of tastes like, you know, Australian wine or something that, and, and I love many Australian wines. I have family there and, and, and travel there and it's a fantastic place. But I was like, but this doesn't, you know, I, I feel like I'm interested in, basically if you do less, it just seems like the wines end up being more transparent to their place. And that's mm -hmm. a very broad statement. I recognize it's, it's in, by, by nature, you could poke holes all over it. But man, I, I just find it to be true. And I find even as I've made wine now for 20 years and met so many producers and talked with them about what they do, um, while certainly you will learn, you know, wine is more than just, you know, I just let them ferment and I don't know, they just become this <laughs> bottled product. You know, obviously there's more to it than that. And so obviously there are times when people over-romanticize simplicity in wine or technique and, and, and really, oh, you're listening to the producer not tell you about all the toil and the slog and the uncertainty. And, and while that may be true, um, I just there's some middle ground where there truly is, for me, a, a simple technique. And, and again, I like analogies. I think of making bread. Um, you might have a couple ingredients of flour and water, maybe salt, maybe yeast, mm -hmm. um, and you need it. Though maybe not, but maybe you need it and rather right. But pretty basic, not the paragraph of ingredients and not the, um, not the techniques that are ultimately seemingly about being able to do something the same every time mm -hmm. and or to be able to do a lot of it throughput essentially sort of industrial techniques of like we need to maximize volume or maximize usage of that tank so we thermo ferment something in seven days and flip that tank several times and it's like those techniques are always about doing something faster cheaper not necessarily better mm -hmm. or the better being it's better because it's cheaper it's better because it's faster it's better because it it comes out the same every time it actually seems to neutralize any of the uniquenesses <laughs> so every time we feel the wine's going to be good and it's like i'm really interested in what's there and not doing much and 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 kind of through wine um allowing myself to practice letting go Mm -hmm. um, and so, because uh, you, you kind of have to, and as a parent, like, well, you raise them to go, and you have to let go. And all along the way, it's a little acts of letting go until, and not like you never see them again, but truly when they grow up and hopefully move out, that you let go in a very big way. And, and I, I do find the language of winemaking and the language of child rearing overlap a lot. And I think there's uh, 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 reasons for it and good reasons for it and so i found that like with good parenting you're very careful and in touch with your children but you are not controlling you know you may guide or otherwise uh and, and help but you don't dominate and uh and and i'll tell you a lot of wines people will talk that they have a light touch and then like well we got to do that or we have to do that or we know or and i learned this through my apprenticeship and i in all of us i mean i i second-guess decisions I make. I've learned ultimately to not make too many decisions in harvest because you ultimately are just like, I, I spent all year saying I wouldn't do that. And then I'm like, okay, it looks like you need to do that. And then you do it. And then you're like, why did I just on the spur of the moment just 
lunge for something when, when I thought I was reacting to the vintage conditions. I'm like, uh, what do you know of these vintage conditions and how they'll manifest in the wine? And so, so much of, of what I apprenticed was watching people either do less and or learn that we didn't need to do all the things we did. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that they were horrible things, but we don't have to. And so for me, the, to, to really summarize, it's about cleaning, keeping things clean, um, and then about kind of uh, uh, trying not to break things, <laughs> like the way you would break cream by over mixing it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes wine, my own wines occasionally, so it's not like other people's wines and mine are never this way. My children never, <laughs> would never do this. <laughs> um, but your children are bad children. Um, but like sometimes wines will taste like broken cream, like a structure all fallen down where all the pieces are still there. It's all there, but the, the, the space of the thing is gone. And, and, you've, and you've kind of punched it down or you've batonaged it away or you've filtered it away or just whatever. Um, you've you've over-techniqued it. And so much of the technique that we'll use is because we're afraid it won't be good otherwise. Um, or it will be bad and will be bad. Negligent winemaker at the winemaking conference, everyone will wag their finger and say, never have bottled wine like this, you know, mm -hmm. nobody wants to be that person. And so there's so much fear, there's just so much like, what's gonna go wrong? And if you don't punch it down twice a day, it's gonna turn to vinegar. It won't have tannin, it won't have color, or it will, you know, it won't get up to temperature, whatever. It's just like, if you don't do this, bad stuff will happen. You have to do this, or bad stuff will happen. And I've learned, keep things clean, and then just don't break the cream. Do not do a lot. And so very little mixing of the reds. And with the whites, no stirring. Um, un unless they fall clear and they weren't done and I want to kind of get them mm -hmm. kind of the yeast in suspension or sort of uh, uh, kind of like push start in a car or something. Generally not the way you want to start it though. That's only in the worst case scenario, right? Uh, and so by and large, just let it be at the car, turn it on, let it go. And so in this case, uh, you know, whites left to ferment and to, and to clarify naturally. And I started bottling some whites longer or later because they would take more than a year to fall clear. And, and instead of rushing them or, um, like right now, I haven't, I haven't sulfured anything that I haven't bottled from 2018, much less 2019. And people always talk about, well, if I haven't sulfured and put it to bed, I won't sleep well. I'm like, I sleep great. <laughs> And uh, I, I want the wine saturated with carbon dioxide, slow fermentation, so like do less, keep it, you know, don't over mix it, mm -hmm. don't over, don't break it. Um, and while that sounds actually, and you know, I listen to myself, I'm afraid of breaking something. So I guess that we all work out of some sort of fear, but the goal ultimately being that the cream will be better for less mixing. You gotta do enough, but not too much. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's essentially a technique of really having trust in the fruit, having trust that each year, it's not like, gosh, if we don't do all this stuff, this wine's gonna be terrible. I just haven't found it to be true. And I often don't find it. Like, oh, you gotta add this nutrient, you gotta do this or that, or you gonna have reduction. It's like, I think everybody in 2019 is facing reduction in their cellars right now, because it just seemed to be a vintage kind of thing. And, uh, uh, and I haven't added nutrients to wine for 10 years, and, and I've never had appreciable you know, lack of finishing ferment. Oh, they ferment and clarifying. They do. Sometimes I gotta let them go a little, <laughs> get a little. But I just try not to push them along. I just let them be, and I and I and I don't filter them. 
and I just find uh, that I do use sulfur dioxide, and I don't like it when people get too hung up on what you do or don't do. Better use sulfur. I like to think of it as like refrigerating the raw milk. Like I, I don't want to take the milk and make something, you know, make something that's not. But I'm, I am trying to keep properties or essential kind of quality in the grape or in the wine. Um, I'm not trying to use sulfur as to exaggerate or extract or do something else to denature. But it's also, these are all judgment things of what one does or doesn't do. But I just find ultimately the, the technique I use, so natural fermentation, no, no additives besides sulfur, um, and just trying to pick the fruit, if you will, at an al dente, ripe, al dente ripeness, kind of a done but not too done. Mm -hmm. Um, there's so much concern in years about, in, in so many years about long hang time and development of flavors. But sometimes that feels to me like letting food cook too long, mm -hmm. and kind of um, wanting to pull it off a little sooner, <laughs> and, and keep it sort of some integrity about it that it might lose by letting it go too long. Um, and uh, but yeah, just a, a simple touch and allowing the wine to be as it is. And I think actually, in fact, you mentioned a wine to me, that a Gamay, that, um, and I remember that wine specifically and not necessarily liking it. <laughs> and I'll tell you a lot of times, it's not like I bought a wines I don't like. The, and that one I, I liked. Sometimes I didn't love it. Sometimes I wasn't sure it was what I thought it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. But all those things make you say, stop and let it be what it is. You, it might change somebody's life. It might be like, hey, you're the one who turned me on to what this grape is. And, and while that could be interesting, and you'd say, it's like you know, somebody's version of a song, like their version of the song, that's terrible. You should hear the original <laughs> great version. And you're like, well, shut up. But no, this is that ver you know, and it inspired me. Mm -hmm. And maybe I will go listen to this better one or whatever. But the idea is to let go of what, like let people love something, let them, find discovery in it and and the the differences I'm talking about and I think honestly most winemakers talk about aren't these differences of like I wasn't putting poison in the bottle and if you like it hey there's life you know and, so we're not talking about some like it's not a subterfuge it's not a, a essentially so much about wine I've come to learn about winemaking and ultimately the grape growing for winemaking is about trust in your process about things that are largely out of your control mm -hmm. Um, over a horizon that is very hard to control because even if you could do something in the farming, the wine's not going to be ready for two years and so who knows what it will be by then or what that will manifest. But that, so it's an, act, it's an act of faith and it involves a ton of trust and the trust is like with parenting. It's not like, hey, little, little Sally can go out all night. Like, no, no, you have curfew and you got this or that. But, you, but within that, you create a very nurturing environment rather than this like lockdown controlling, or you're going to med school, and you're going to be this, and you're going to not be that. Like, you'd be shocked at how they grow up and the interesting people they become. And I find wine is true that way. I don't think that is, you know, I can hear friends of mine saying, one in particular, it's always saying, oh, wine doesn't make itself. I hate it when people say that. I kind of, kind of does, in a clean place topped up and, and bottled properly, <laughs> carefully, you know, it largely does. And the wine cellars around this valley right now, a lot of wine just sort of sitting there, just hanging. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay, you don't, need to, you don't need to fuss with it nearly as much as you think. So that's it's kind of the approach that I've taken. I started pretty 
much in that vein, but I've certainly there were things I had to come off of and, and concerns of like, again, not punching down a red fermenter every day or multiple times a day. Um, I think it was Francois Millet at one of the steamboat conferences some years ago from the Comte de Vogue in Burgundy. He was here for IPNC and steamboat folks had invited him to come early for that. And he was classically French. V-neck, I love V-neck. <laughs> Want to be Frenchman? No, I can't. But, uh, he, I don't know, he is blazer on, whatever. But he was very quiet. He finally gets up there to talk about his wine. And he talked about, you know, my job is to decide when to do the one punch down on Musini. And, and you could see people like, what? One a day? And he's like, no, one. <laughs> the only one. Because it doesn't need any more than that. You know, I'm a ruse, you might need three or four. So it's not all the same for, you know, but, and it just blew my mind, like, what do you mean? Now, they do pump overs and stuff, but, but clearly they're not mixing things mm -hmm. on that, like, just literal morning, <laughs> noon, and night, or morning and night, two, 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 two a day kind of recipe. And while every vineyard is in Busanee, and maybe some vineyards need more physical work to extract what's good there, what's there, um, hardly every vineyard needs that. Like, maybe we should lighten that, maybe we should, and this guy was in, this guy's a master. It's not like he's some Yahoo who doesn't know what he's doing. So it's just interesting. It was one of those formative moments where, um, and I've had several of them through reading and, and, and or, you know, conferences or whatnot, where you're like, they only do what? Like, oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's just, you know, you kind of, you learn things that, that open your eyes to the things that are done differently than the sort of singular way that I apprenticed in more in the California and then just kind of early on the idea of, yeah, of just a little heavier touch to make sure you're getting it all. Um, I've really tried to not, I've really backed away from that. So ultimately my process started very close to what it is now. It's certainly evolved, but, um, but I haven't gone from like, my story isn't like I was, you know, conventional winemaking to like very natural winemaking. I was influenced by the sort of the era of real wine, which is its own problematic uh, term, natural wine being a problematic term for people. Well, is my wine not natural or is my wine unreal? Um, but just that idea of simple touch, letting places speak and allowing for sort of the mysteries and unexpected things to happen. Um, again, like with you know, jazz musicians, improv, you know, they aren't just goofing around. They've studied 20 years and tuned the thing perfectly, then let go and improv, you know? So it's not just some random experimentation. I found that so much of the great winemakers take a, if not improv approach per se, but a much less scripted approach, a much more simple approach. Um, and that's, I've ultimately just gained more confidence, I guess. So my story has been a pretty natural or kind of old school way and, and only more so as I've, I've kind of learned more and mm -hmm. gotten the uh, reasonable confidence, um, the experienced confidence. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. So let's talk about the fruit a little bit then, and the, and the vineyards. You talk yeah. about that's you, you trust the fruit and, and finding the and so yeah. where do you find the fruit you trust? What are you looking for in a vineyard? Well, and, and that's that's a great that's a great thing. I think something that honestly makes this may sound convenient, but something that makes our area so special among others is that there's a lot of special fruit here. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of interesting places, a lot of interesting hillsides, a lot of interesting flanks of land that produce grapes that are trustworthy. 
Um, and so it's not like I have the few vineyards that are, and you have to do these magical things to make it so. I really think that more grapes are more trustworthy probably than a lot of people think. Oh, with such and such, we might be hands off, but not with this plant. I'd be like, you'd be surprised. Let it, let, let some of it just ferment. Don't, don't like put through the cocktails of the, the amino acids and the go firm and stuff. Like, let it just see what happens, and maybe don't punch it down every day. Um, don't push it. Mm -hmm. Just let it be. You'd be mm -hmm. amazed. Um, it's, but with that being said, the more point of fact to answer the question, um, it's been just through relationships. I've worked with Zenith Vineyard really from the start, uh, and, and the Armstrong Vineyard on Ribbon Ridge. The owners there are old friends who planted in 07, and so I've been working with the fruit since they were baby vines. Mm -hmm. Um, through people like John Groshaw, I met Mark and Patty Bjornsson, who worked with their vineyard for Pinot Noir and Gamay. Um, and, at, and at the time, even when I met them, they were like, well, we'll have fruit in two or three years. Like, they're very, both lined up and in demand, meaning if you're in that vineyard, great, but if you're not, you might be waiting a while to get some, get some rose. And so, um, happily, I wasn't needing fruit right away, but I thought maybe if I'm still here in a couple of years, I will, and sure <laughs> enough, started working with their vineyard in 2011. Love that wine. That was a fantastic year for them. Uh, and, and so over the years, it's just through people who've tasted the wines, who've gotten to know me, who've, um, yeah, who, who, who say, hey, you know, and, and point of fact, have some fruit to sell. Mm -hmm. So, hey, come, you know, maybe come work, uh, you know, work with our vines. And so I've been able to work, I work with nine different vineyards for the five different grape varieties I work with, uh, some more than one, certainly. Uh, and so, uh, and, I, and I've learned that um, there are a couple of vineyards I've worked with over the years that I don't work with anymore that it's not so much that they're a problem or bad vineyards. I know people who make good wine from them. I've had good wines from these vineyards. I've made what I thought were good wines. But they definitely, um, if not all grades of, you know, of, of a fish or a sashimi grade, if you will, <laughs> it's a few vineyards I've worked with that haven't really allowed me to, to basically ferment to the dryness without adding nutrients or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've definitely weeded out a couple of properties, but none that I've ever sort of put on the label. I wouldn't single vineyard bottle something, though it's factually true it's from this vineyard. To me, it's a, a reward or, or a, a reward to the vineyard, but a marker to the consumer that mm -hmm. this is worth saying it's from this one place because mm -hmm. there's something singular about mm -hmm. it. It, it may be factually true, but I make just call it Willamette Valley because to me it's a wine that represents just the Willamette Valley. Um, and, uh, and, and if a vineyard isn't, um, yeah, if I just feel like I can't work with it in the cellar the way I want to, mm -hmm. that certainly you know, will be a way I understand I'm not gonna work with that vineyard in the future. That being said, that's been far the exception than the rule mm -hmm. and that um, really it's through relationships and it's through being able to and I feel much better than 20 years ago when I first started of identifying like what what is what am I looking for in a vineyard what does it look like what is it farmed how is it planted how is it farmed um, how is the well, you can see it in the canopy especially later in the summer you can really get a sense of where the water is in the vineyard and where it's not I mean I work with exclusively non-irrigated vines mm -hmm. so we're interested in in what is there um, and not kind of dialing in the, the water. Um, but you can, you know, I remember looking at a vineyard and thinking, well, I don't know what I'm looking at 20 years ago. <laughs> like, 
is it good or not? <laughs> you know? And now I have a great idea when I'm looking at something like, oh, I wonder why they're doing that, or oh, I never noticed this. I wonder if they have such an issue and they you know, bend the canes to, for whatever reason mm -hmm. in, their, in the way they tie things down. It's, there's just different techniques for different, different issues. So um, at this point then it becomes, if I were to add a vineyard or look to, I'd be much more proactive and like that's the like kind of what I did with Eve from Wood. I called them up. I said, "You're probably stuck in your house too, huh?" So I wait for a day when the growers stuck in their house. I kid, but um, I'm like, "This is why I want to work with your site. You have the soil, you got the vine age, you got the blah blah or whatever." Mm -hmm. I kid. I, I actually am not looking to like acquire or work with more spots. It's more honing in on the ones I work on, mm -hmm. and maybe even streamlining a block or two because I have in some vineyards multiple sections that I work with and. And to some degree, you know, sometimes maybe I could change that up a little bit now. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's and the way I work with growers, and I always explain this, because customers generally don't understand that even when you own a vineyard, you sell fruit, not infrequently, if only just get some money now <laughs> and pay for the farming and the picking. Uh, but also, you know, you got 20 acres and you're going to bring in 50 tons, like, oh, we're going to make 30 tons and sell the rest. Mm -hmm. there's, there's like, it's sort of like a dinner party. By the end, you're just like, anybody take leftovers. It's not like, but that idea of just get them out. Like, I've got plenty of fruit. Like, help me out. So there's just practical realities of vineyards buying and selling. And also the idea of if, if there's a curse of the estate vineyard, and uh, it's because you're like, gosh, they have volcanic soil over there. I really want to make some wine from that too. So like, hey, let's trade or let's buy from mm -hmm. one or whatever. But mm -hmm. that idea of wanting uh, a little more diversity in what you produce. So, um, so it's just, it's interesting how we're able to work with growers on this acre, this half acre. Um, you know, the Pinot Blanc I work with is the, I get all the fruit from the one block of Pinot Blanc at Zenith Vineyard. Um, I've worked with uh, the Ramies there for a decade and more now on Pinot Noir and started working with them two years ago with Pinot Blanc and uh, just a great side. I finally feel like I have a home for Pinot Blanc and I feel like something's coming out in the wine where I may actually put the vineyard on the label for the Blanc mm -hmm. uh, or have a special cuvee or mm -hmm. something but like it's getting to that point where there's a, a purpose to that and not just it's factually true but it's meaningful I think in the wine. Um, and so uh, the, the way I work with growers is, is just very close, it's very relational, um, and, and again, I feel lucky that I've been able to connect with people of kind of, of, who've wanted to understand what I'm looking for, and not just like, here's the fruit, here's when it's getting picked, it's everything else is, mm -hmm. how do you want us to be doing this? And obviously I decide when, the, when, when their pick dates are that we need to, find a crew we need to basically whether or not you own it you can't you can only pick if you got people there to pick you and me let's do it uh, so it's uh, you know when you talk about having control it's like well control well we're gonna pick tomorrow but it's now it's gonna rain so we're hoping to fix that you know it's just mm -hmm. you know no matter who you are you're 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 you're, you're in it you're on a boat on the water and and, and you're you're just I feel good about being able to work so close with my growers such that it's it's like it's a state fruit. It's like it's mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. it's like I own it, mm -hmm. but I don't have to. Which is which is actually nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's so talk about the industry a little bit more uh, mm -hmm. broad broad perspective. Here, twenty years or so in yeah, uh, now. Uh, 
<laughs> and and uh, so tell me what you've seen in Oregon since you become a part of the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what's changed? What's the same? And and what do you see happening next? It's I mean, it's only gotten more exciting and more. Um, I remember that 05 harvest. Russ Rainey said, "Gosh, I wouldn't want to be starting a label now or a winery now." And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> Pass the, the Gruner Fellinger. I'm, I'm just going to ask you any advice. I'm thinking by 09, I might have a label now. But I remember, I remember thinking that. And he's absolutely right. It's only true. It's only more true, meaning that he was commenting that when he started, it was hard enough to grow grapes, make wine, get out there. And obviously, or the Oregon industry in the 80s and the later 80s when he was starting to sell his wine was not even what it is now or was in, in, in 05. So they had to like kind of plow the roads before you could drive on them, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, but here it had already come so far that he was saying, "Gosh, you know, 20 years ago it was a lot easier just to people say, hey, local wine is half decent, you're in.'" Now mm-hmm. it's like, "Well, we already got about 10 producers. Well, now people have hundreds." <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's so I look at it and think a couple things. One is there's so much still I think growth potential. There's really an interest uh, in Oregon wine, and Oregon as uh, as a brand. Um, I, I mean, this is my experience, but I and I'm a native Californian, proud of my home state, proud of their wines. But I do laugh out loud even when I'm in Montreal, and people are like, "Oh, Oregon, the good, the good American wine." <laughs> I'm not going to disabuse them of that belief. Um, but the idea being that they're like, oh, there's something that's sort of like a shoe that fits, you know? It's like, Oregon, that's, you'd think all that stuff's the same out there on the West Coast, but there's actually something really special in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, and while I'm, I was once an editorial assistant in a publishing company, and at 25, friends were like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> And I, I, like, I tried to convince them, like, I'm the editor's assistant. Like, I've, and then we're answering the phone, I'm practically getting the coffee, you know, like, <laughs> this is not glamorous. This is not a, I'm, I'm excited for you kind of you know, thing. But it's, after a while, I just gave up. I'm like, you're right, it's the best job ever. <laughs> and, and I find that when people have a belief about something, as long as, again, it's like, I believe this is not poison, and it is poison, let's try and disabuse them of that. But uh, I would convince that people were really excited for me being an editorial assistant, and I go out in the world selling wine, and they are stoked that I'm from Oregon, because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, Oregon, we like Oregon. Mm-hmm. And I even go to Los Angeles where I grew up, and they're like, he's from Oregon. I'm like, I'm from Santa Monica. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, Oregon. <laughs> no, but, uh, it is great, though, because I'm like, taste it. And mm-hmm. I literally pour them Oregon, and I love that about it. I love that about the wine and, and what I'm really trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad they like it too, but there's, there's something like over now 55, 54 years, uh, we're really known worldwide. We were known 20 years ago and more, but we are only increasingly so. I think it makes it that much more, if not easy, more level of a playing field or relatively level for us to go out there and compete in the world. We don't have to convince people mm-hmm. Oregon's okay as mm-hmm. much. Generally, people are like Portlandia, or have some some reason, and they're like and great, and then yeah, pour this, and they're like, and yeah, that's really good, like Oregon, and so I feel like we've come a long way, but a lot of it has been to build up this reputation that we are only now taking advantage, not taking advantage mm-hmm, of, but mm-hmm. like 
we're, we're growing in our ability to, to make advantage of it. Uh, and, and so I feel like it remains very exciting. It's been exciting, but remains all the more so. And with the proliferation of labels, which though every generation says it, and I heard it from Russ, like I wouldn't want to start now. I certainly wouldn't want to start now. Um, and if so, I also would think it would be very much more difficult for me to focus on Pinot Noir the way I do and have. Uh, because as crowded as the field was in, in the, the, the late 2000s, um, it's, it's just crazy now. And, and I feel very lucky and, 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 and glad that I've been able to establish myself as a maker of you know, fine Oregon Pinot Noir. And I have customers around the country and outside the country as well mm -hmm. through distribution, but direct customers around the country and, and many distributors. Uh, who, who share my wines far and wide, and it's, uh, it's remarkable. Um, and and who, who are sort of like, when are your 18 Pinot Noirs coming out? And it's like, wow, that's what I would ask a producer. Like, that must be me, you know? <laughs> so it's been 20 years or 10 as a commercial producer, and I still feel new, mm -hmm. but, uh, but maybe I need to get over that. Um, but I just feel like as crowded as the market is getting, there's still so much opportunity for what Oregon does, so much potential for us to continue to be the good wine. <laughs> and Chardonnay especially, oh my gosh. So many people, I mean people love, I mean who doesn't like champagne or even a lot of sparkling wine out there that isn't champagne that has some if not a lot of Chardonnay in it. But they'll be like, oh yeah, I don't like Chardonnay. And then they try Oregon Chardonnay and they're like, oh, but I like that Chardonnay. And now I think about it, I do like some other, it sounds like I like French Chardonnay. I think we have a potential to really be like a trustworthy Chardonnay producer area that is, that is um, what people are afraid, that, that delivers wines that aren't what people are afraid Chardonnay are, that are heavy, woody, kind of sweet tart, and just kind of a cocktail or mm -hmm. a, a, a apricot nectar of a Chardonnay, where they're like almost want reassurance that it's it's going to be what they want, which is a little more crisp, a little more nervy, but a little, but 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 rich like Chardonnay, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, flavory the way Chardonnay is, and, and uh, uh, as opposed to Pinot Blanc's more like linear, citrusy kind of purity. Um, so I make both kind of for that reason. Chardonnay has a fatter, kind of richer taste, even when you make it in a leaner way. Mm -hmm. um, but if a generation or a decade ago or more, people would look at a pink wine and ask. Um, or just comment like it's sweet, right? Now, invariably, people will say it's dry, right? Like it's switched, mm -hmm. and I feel like Chardonnay has so much potential for people to trust that it's going to be something they want because people trusted that rosé was going to be sweet, and they didn't want that. And it was something that their you know their parents or somebody somebody equally awful would drink, and so they, the, the trust has been gained though. So now they're almost concerned like it's dry, right? So that with Chardonnay, mm -hmm. I feel like the, the I'll, I'll be pointing Pinot Blanc, Chardonnay, Gamay, Pinot Noir. They'll be like, Pinot Blanc, awesome. Who knew Pinot Blanc? I love it, but who knew? There's actually mm -hmm. a lot of people out there who love Pinot Blanc and think of. They'll be like, oh no, I'll pass the Chardonnay. And I'm like, really? I think it's just like, I make the Blanc just the same. Like, really? Well, here, try that. They're like, oh, well, that's not like most Chardonnay. So I feel like we have this opportunity in Oregon, and part mm -hmm. of where it's not just, there's tons of labels, there's tons of growth. But we actually have substantive things to accomplish, which is to help people understand that, that Chardonnay can be is wonderful, not just good, and to have trust that 
Oregon Chardonnay is like, oh, you want one of those? Like that's the good one. Mm -hmm. That's the good kind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know that that those producers or any number would just pick, just pick any of them. You know, <laughs> but I like that one best. So mm -hmm. whatever. So I feel like we substantively have that kind of that mission to try to accomplish in the next ten years, and I think we're really good, in a good position to do that. Um, and I just feel like as much as Pinot Noir has been dominant, and I love it. I am excited. I used to tell the story that I love the Willamette Valley in part because we weren't trying to be all things, and we certainly still aren't, but we were very focused, and I like that. We are definitely framed in that focus, but I think it's exciting. I think it, there's reason for it. There are many other things that grow well here. They typically are not the things that, um, I mean, they're typically not Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot mm -hmm. or Sangiovese. So even that, like trying to grow that outside of Italy, that's a challenge. You're not grow it, but like make it. But basically, they're going to typically be the grapes that are going to that people are kind of coming into. Typically, more fringe grapes. And I think that's actually helpful for us to be like we're not the, trying to be the third rate, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon producer of the West Coast. It's like we're not. So we are kings, queens. We are the top of Pinot Noir, and I'd like to say Chardonnay. And, and hopefully we can cement that more than we have already. Um, but we're also a place for really interesting kind of garden of varieties, <laughs> as opposed to garden variety, but a, 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 a mix of, of, of types of grapes that are just fun. Like, I'd never even heard of that, but you should try it, because it's from the Luana Valley, and they, do, they grow all kinds of crazy cool stuff, and so it's kind of the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think our growth can, can really adhere with that, and that the primacy of our leaders of, of, or of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay can be maintained and actually supported by the fact that we're not just that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we're not trying to replace that. Mm -hmm. And or, and who knows, a generation or five from now, people, their taste may change and people want all sparkling wine and they want it from Trousseau, I don't know. But I'm for right now, I'm interested that the proliferation or fragmentation that's happening is or typically in things that any of them are kind of like, they're an immediate threat to coherence in the market. Mm -hmm. In fact, they're, they're not novelty. There's some better word to describe their uniqueness as a variety of grapes from the Trousseau, um, even Gamay, because mm -hmm. I love Gamay, but most people have never heard of it still. And so it's definitely still a fringe thing in the mm -hmm. real marketplace. Um, we have a ton of potential with that, but I think we'll only support what we're doing as, as producers of grapes like Pinot and Chard that are grown and known the world over. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and yet we aren't just like a, a, an add-on to that tradition. We are actually at the vanguard of it. And it's, um, it's tremendously exciting. So that's my way of saying I'm going to be planting Movedra. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, I was just going to ask, what are you looking at as you look ahead for yourself and your company in the next decade It's interesting. So? Um, a little more balance between white and red. I've made, I started out 100% red wine. Mm -hmm. I am probably 65 to 70% red. And I could see that being 50-50 even. Mm -hmm. um, and primarily that'd be Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. um, for my production, for my, for my brand, I think that can work. If I were to start right now, um, I have a, a, a good friend of mine, Saul Muchnick of Championship Bottle. Mm -hmm. He's very much inspired by the ones of Friuli. Not as a, like, like with me in Burgundy or whatnot. It's not karaoke or some cover band, you know, kind of. But it's this inspiration, but 
a certain family or tradition, but let's you know, but here, mm-hmm. and let's see what what that does here. And so there's coherence in your experimentation, and, um, and I think it's fantastic because he's Samuel Blanc, Tokai Fruilano, uh, a few different grapes that are that that are grown here, and some in very small amounts, but perhaps will grow more. Literally, um, for me, I'm more interested in finding a slightly different balance in my production and looking at Pinot Noir's, um, trying not to ask Pinot Noir to be too much in my production. It was 100% of my production for th- the first three years. It was too much, and, and I want to make other things than I do. Um, what's been really interesting to me is finding alternative red wines to Pinot Noir at the low end. And Gamay obviously can be that. It crops higher in the vineyard. It can just make even at a quantity Qual- uh, uh, you basically can crop it fairly high and make a delicious, colorful, flavory red wine that can be more economically mm-hmm. priced mm-hmm. and or produced than Pinot Noir, which is sort of like chanterelle mushrooms, and you can't be chopping them up and putting them in as a button mushroom omelet. <laughs> you know, honestly. And so I have a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir that I can't make money on. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying I can't make money on it. I mean to say that there's not nearly any much margin in mm-hmm. it to be able I basically need other things to almost covered for it. And so I can't ask Pinot Noir to basically have that like by the glass, you know, or in keg or whatever. It's gotta be different stuff. And so Gamay is part of that. And I've been interested in Gamay and I'm interested in single vineyard expression of Gamay, but as a, a, a table wine, you know, uh, I think it has tremendous potential. That being said, I've been pleasantly surprised to find that red Pinot Gris for me has become uh, a, a, another red wine that I make. Um, it's lighter in color, but I make it and market it as red wine. I think of it as red wine. Mm-hmm. Texturally, mm-hmm. it's red wine. It's not just a few days on the skins for color. It's the full fermentation on the skins for tannic expression, for, for to capture everything red about the fruit. Um, literally and, and taste-wise, uh, but the, the, the visual and the taste. And people have been loving it, not just as a fashionable, chillable red wine, or, but as an alternative mm-hmm. red wine that, um, that kind of is like a, a Cote du Rhone. It can be peppery and kind of stony and kind of fun and economical to produce, to farm, produce, and ultimately sell for somebody to make hand, or can have handmade Willamette Valley wine. Um, and that is a, just a different expression of, well, literally Pinot, but certainly a different expression of the valley more broadly. And I just think it's, uh, it's been really interesting, and my production of that has been increasing. And so it's, it's sort of, for me, not finding new grape varieties to work with, but to the Gris as red wine has definitely been kind of something I'm still working into. And so it's not that I'm experimenting, but I'm, it's definitely newer in the mix. Um, and, and finding the right mix ultimately of red wine, white wine, and, 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 and really putting more behind my Chardonnay to be part of, to help plow the road and ultimately travel on the road, the, Chardon- the Oregon Chardonnay kind of road that uh, says that we make really truly world-class, meaning tasteless with the wines of the world of the scrape, and they really stand up. And I, I don't like that word, world-class, or people throw things because I'm not really, but when I think about it, actually it does come into play, because when I think about our Chardonnay or Pinot, or any of our wines really, 
um, I really, what I think so excited is like we're not only keeping up with the world, like mm -hmm. we are really part of the pace group of, of world wine production. And, uh, and I'm just, I'm proud of that. And it's, it's, uh, it's good to be a part of it. And I feel for Chardonnay that we, we're still, um, we're still on the come up, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting too. So Absolutely. Yeah. So if someone, I'm sure this has probably happened to you, if someone were to come to you and say they wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today, what would you tell them? What would your words of wisdom be? I get people asking me that actually several times a year. And um, like seriously, a lot of people just, but, but and I would tell them, um, God, what do I tell them? It's, you know, I never am too succinct. I tell them a couple of things. One is show up. Just keep showing up. If you want to work production or you want to just work a harvest, even if you're just, not just, but if you're waiting tables in a restaurant or whatever, and to have a maker's knowledge, even if you're not going to be making, but you're going to be in wine sales or whatever, to work some time in a cellar, God, so valuable. It will, it will help you not say things to customers that are just factually ridiculous about how wine's made, and, and we all do it, and I remember, you know, yeah, you start guessing, like, I think that means this. And so it's just helpful when you have a lot more knowledge and, and by making. Mm -hmm. but, but so how do you do that? Show up. Because <laughs> I found that most, the winery work isn't so hard, but at times it's drudgery. Time, it's, sometimes it's glorified a harvest. You know, I work 50 straight days, and it's like some masculine or some machismo kind of thing. And harvest isn't about that or any of this work. Ultimately, at times it can be like we're doing that again, or it's cold out, and we're going to clean these things. We just dirtied them and emptied them, or filled them, emptied them, cleaned them. We're going to fill them again. We're going to clean them tomorrow. Like, you know, there's certainly more monotonous things in the world, but on the hilltop, we got a harvest. Like, someone's showing up to work today. I hope so. I hope so. Come on, be really into it, because sometimes it's not. You know, you just got to work, right? And uh, and so I just, if people are afraid they can't handle it or whatnot. Oh my gosh, just show up and don't let people be, don't let the sort of machismo of winemaking or grape growing and the slog of it be too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It may not be work for you, but I actually didn't think I could handle it. Like, I, this is not my normal thing, a forklift drive and this and that. I've grown into it. But I've also learned, because yeah, I think I overbuilt it, and I kind of didn't, nobody, I didn't have enough people telling me, like, just keep showing up, don't worry, just keep showing up, and you're doing great, or something, or just kind of like, uh, uh, yeah, a little reassurance, I guess. So I give people reassurance, they can do it if they're interested, just show up. But I also tell them, no matter what you do, if you're gonna make wine, work in sales, work in a shop, do some, like, understand the cycle of it. Mm -hmm. and, for me, it's an intellectual curiosity. I'm a contextualist. I, I make a bad soldier. They're like, you know, Fridgie, march up that hill. Well, shouldn't we go around the hill? It's a little flatter, you know? Get there quick. Shut up, you know? Get, go get, you know? <laughs> Noted, you know? Uh, I, I just, <laughs> sometimes I, uh, yeah, oh, it's just, uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> As I just say, advice for people, and they're coming. You're a contextualist. You, oh, I'm you. a contextualist. Oh, 
Thank you. I'm a contextualist. I like tangents too. Um, and so, ultimately, that soldier might have been right to say, hey, there's a better way. But at that point of fact, that's not how things work. You go where they tell you to go. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, but in, in something like wine, which is not that way, if you're going to work as a sommelier, if you're going to work in a wine shop, if you're going to work outside sales for distributorship, if you're going to work in a tasting room, to have a variety of experience in your field, I think, is critically interesting, uh, important for somebody's creative kind of life development. So they're not just like, oh, I just do this robotic job every day. Well, maybe you should look at it a little more holistically, mm -hmm. contextually, and then learn about those other things. If for no other reason, it might pass the time. It might be a little more fun. Um, but, but honestly, the more and more as economies or our economy has changed, um, it's, I think what sets you apart is your ability to not just be like, hey, I'm a you know, seller rat, but yeah, I can't do tasting events, or mm -hmm. I can't, or yeah, I don't like that, or, I don't, you know, deliver anything. It's like, I remember Russ Randy saying, hey, can you deliver some wine for me on your way back to Portland? Can you deliver to Liner and Elson wine shop? And I'm like, I get to walk in as your guy delivering your wine to them? <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I'll do that every day of the week. Like, that was exciting, but also I knew that was going to be like, Oh, dude, what are you doing? Like, oh, I'm working harvest. Oh, okay. Like, that's not a dumb thing. And just kind of, uh, anyway, I feel like in this, in, in, if you want to work in this field, and I would say this of anybody who's in any field, you can't just get hired and have a job. You've got to continually be providing not just value, but just like, you know, usefulness and mm -hmm. interestingness. And because five years from now, we're not going to be bottling anything. We're going to be putting it all in cans. I don't know. But like, you can't get too dialed into the one thing. You have to be willing to, to change. And part of that change is understanding what might change. And part of that is understanding various aspects of the business. Mm -hmm. I once worked somewhere where we had to send out a confirmation that you, you know, ordered. They got, we got the order. And, and the person ultimately was like, my job is to send the confirmation out, not that it get to the person. Because I was like, yeah, the confirmations aren't getting to them. Like, there's something wrong in our thing. They're like, hey, I sent them out. <laughs> and I'm like, that's just not good enough. <laughs> and so I think life, though, is that way. So bottom line, you want into this industry, show up. Don't be too good for anything. Meaning, wheeling the boxes into Liner Nelson was probably a smart thing, even though I was just wheeling boxes like any old delivery person. That's a great job. So don't, don't knock it. Um, and, and, but recognize how smart it would be to have a lot of varied experience mm -hmm. in whatever field you want to be in. Because that's how you gain expertise and that's how you become valuable and maintain and it back to the idea of or for no other reason than you might actually just find it's interesting. You might have more fun. You might just enjoy it. So show up <laughs> and, and learn stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So all the questions that I have for you. That's is it. there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Um, yeah, I, nothing that I can think of. Uh, I really can't. I, I'm, I'm interested more than ever to hear other interviews and the future ones mm -hmm. and to see them. Good. There's plenty out there for you, so I we'll talk know. about that. You guys are great. <laughs> and I'm also interested to learn more about the project and to see the mysterious archive. The mysterious archive, exactly. Well. Yeah. Thank you so much you for bet. your time. We'll go show you the Mysterious Archive now. Appreciate it. Cheers. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.